Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton doing some work behind the scenes coming up on this week's episode. After a few weeks on break, we'll be joined by Ward Camp, the president of Northwood Retail. Northwood Retail does a lot of different things, leasing assistance, retail development, property management in the retail world, but specifically Ward will be joining us to discuss the onset of open air centers and why they prefer a mix that leans into some of the local or maker-founded retailers that are out there. We'll discuss, of course, the big news of the week involving Kroger and Albertsons. We'll look ahead to more flexible scheduling platforms hitting the grocery market. This week's podcast is brought to you by NordPass Business Password Manager. We'll talk about them a little bit later on in the show. So yes, let's get right into it. The biggest news of this past week came late in the week, and especially on Friday as Kroger hosted a call to discuss their proposed merger agreement with Albertsons. Depending on which lens you view it through, it either makes complete sense or no sense at all. And even if you view it through the latter lens, you can see at least what Kroger has in mind from a distance. But I I think our thoughts were very well summarized in a text I received from Leighton yesterday. Maybe Kroger just likes to spend millions of dollars for lawyers to help facilitate deals that stand little chance of full approval by regulators. And we'll talk about why here in a few moments. First, let's talk about the numbers and the main facets of the deal. The two stores combined would have just shy of 5,000 stores, 4,996 in fact. And that's not inclusive of all their stores combined, but we'll talk more on that in a bit. Kroger's offer to purchase Albertsons is valued at $34.10 per share, plus assumed debt of $4.7 billion. So that puts the overall value of the company Albertsons at $24.6 billion overall. It would be the overall deal value. The per share price of the buyout is a bit of a premium, although not an outlandish one. You look at Albertson's prior closing share price, it was $28.63, and the 3410 per share is a premium of around 29.7% on their 30-day rolling average. In terms of the purchase price, shareholders will see it'll actually be reduced by a special one-time dividend of $6.85 per share. So when that buyout comes down, it'll be reduced by that. It will also be reduced by any potential retention in the stake of a new company that will be generated as a result of the deal. So when you look at the deal through the eyes of Albertson shareholders, you can see that it's a pretty reasonable deal. You get that special dividend, you get a share premium, and depending on how bullish you were on the company's stock, it seems like an acceptable deal from a shareholder's perspective at least. Not a terribly high premium as far as Kroger is concerned, too, so seems like a reasonable deal, at least financially. Kroger is going to finance the deal through cash on hand and new debt financing. They'll actually suspend their share repurchase program until they deleverage a little bit. They're seeking a two and a half times EBITDA net leverage target within 18 to 24 months after close before they restart their share buybacks. And by the way, in terms of leadership going forward, Rodney McMullen and Gary Millerchip 
would continue as the new company's CEO and CFO, respectively. No word on Albertson's CEO, Vivek Shankaran's future there. We've talked about what a good job he's done, despite the fact that it's pretty obvious Albertson's as a company has some shortcomings when you compare them to the likes of Walmart and Kroger. He's done a great job at maintaining profitability and guiding them through the pandemic, and I do feel as though this buyout offer might be the cherry on top as far as Albertsons is concerned. Now, I mentioned that spinoff company earlier, how shareholders' proceeds might be reduced by the share price of a spinoff company that they would retain shares of. So here's how that's going to work. Anytime you bring together two very, very large chains with as many stores as what Kroger and Albertsons has, there's going to be some overlap there. And so how they're going to deal with this overlap is they're going to spin off a number of stores into a new company called Spinco. The number of stores to be spun off, well, that differs based on the source you read. In reading about this in media, you can see anywhere between 300 to 600 stores is estimated. Kroger, though, in their SEC filing, spotted a lower number of stores. They said the spinoff would include 100 to 375 stores, which, again, differed quite a bit from the first media reports. The company will be spun off into the hands of Albertson shareholders. They would then own shares of Spinco, which is advertised by Kroger as, and I quote, a new agile competitor with quality stores, end quote. However, those who have followed retail closely over the last decade or so, we know how these spinoffs usually go. RIP, by the way, to Dollar Express, which never really made it out of the start gate when that family dollar and Dollar Tree merger took place. Now, the presumption as far as Albertsons and Kroger is concerned is that these stores that would be spun off would have been made redundant by the merger and therefore would otherwise have been closed if not for the spinoff. So you feel like this is maybe a little bit of a bone thrown towards regulators who might already be casting an unfavorable eye towards this deal. You know, they'd likely bristle against that many stores being closed outright especially given the concern over food deserts in the past five years. But this option, the spinoff option, allows the stores to kind of sink or swim on their own, even if we would think the future would lean more towards sinking than swimming. And like I said, we've seen how this type of thing has happened in the past. We saw, of course, a lot of closures in regards to Rite Aid and Walgreens and that partial merger. And then I mentioned Dollar Express for those that might not have been aware when Family Dollar and Dollar Tree merged. They had to sell off a number of locations. They went to a private equity firm, supposed to be rebranded as Dollar Express, into yet another dollar store chain. However, most of the stores never got rebranded. A lot of them ended up closing, and some of them ended up being sold back to either Dollar General or Family Dollar. So, like I said, this is kind of a way to just let those stores either sink or swim on their own, rather than just shuttering once the deal is complete. So we talked about regulatory approval and in the beginning how both Leighton and I kind of doubt that this is going to get regulatory approval as it is currently designed. This deal is pending that approval and that could be difficult to come by in full at least given regulators' recent behavior. I just mentioned Rite Aid and Walgreens in terms of store sell-offs. I think this is the most similar deal to point to on the retail front. Regulators drastically altered the terms of the deal they'd be willing to accept. It was supposed to be kind of a full merger there between Rite Aid's and Walgreens. Instead, 
Rite Aid continues today in a reduced form. The eventual result of that circumstance was a sell-off of some of their locations to Walgreens, a retention of others by Rite Aid, and closures of locations by both afterwards, especially where they were in redundant markets. But we've certainly seen Rite Aid, as they've rebranded, any stores that are receiving that rebranding, those are the stores they want to stay open, any stores that are not receiving that new rebranding likely to close once their leases end. Now, this deal, the Kroger deal, does have some differences, most notably in terms of market share. When you look at the combined company as proposed by this deal, it would still only make up an estimated 13% of U.S. market share. When you look back at that Rite Aid Walgreens deal, retail pharmacy was a lot more highly consolidated before that merger proposal. So the presence of various regional chains such as Wegmans, Ingalls, and Weiss, you have quasi-national mainline brands like Spartan Nash, other super centers out there like Meyer, as well as the emergence of major players like Publix, for example, who have added a vast number of locations in the American Southeast. Those players have kept Walmart, Albertsons, and Kroger from completely dominating market share. So it's a little bit different, grocery is certainly, than retail pharmacy. So regulators might look at this and say, hey, we don't have to worry about antitrust concerns. But when you look at individual markets, and this is something that we know regulators do, they may have some questions about local monopolies, especially if you focus just on standard grocers. So not looking at value chains, not looking at premium chains or organic chains, And Southern California would be one example. Albertsons Brands and Kroger's Ralph's brand pretty much dominate the market share there. The front range in Colorado is another and one, obviously, that I've got experience with. Walmart has a limited presence in, say, the Denver and Colorado Springs markets compared to King Supers and City Market, who are both owned by Kroger, and then Safeway, who is, of course, owned by Albertsons. So you look at those two markets, those are two pretty big markets where you would essentially have, if not local monopolies, certainly one chain owning the vast majority of the grocery market share. Dallas, Fort Worth, and Arizona might have a local monopoly argument as well, but honestly, the market share held by Walmart and their neighborhood market spinoff is greater in those areas generally. Also, Arizona served pretty well by Sprouts, but again, not really a mainline grocer there in Sprouts. I think at least in the DFW area and Arizona, you can make an argument that they might not hold as much market share once they combine companies. Kroger's argument, though, would be that there's very little overlap when you look at the entire country based on the proposed new company. They actually released a map to the SEC and to their investor relations page regarding their complementary footprints. And there's very little overlap there. Part of this is due to the number of spinoff stores. We would project a lot of these spinoff stores to be in Colorado and SoCal based on the map that was received of the Spinco stores there. You're going to see a lot of them probably in the western United States. But this map also shows why Kroger might want to initiate this deal in the first place. It'll close gaps in their national coverage, particularly in the Mountain West and Northern Mountain West, where you're seeing population booms across Wyoming and Montana and Idaho, and especially in the Northeast for Kroger, because they currently have next to no presence there. So it certainly does open up markets, especially as it pertains to some of their e-commerce offerings, which we know Kroger has been bullish on rolling out over the last few years. 
What are some other reasons Kroger might want to strike this deal? Well, in a simple word, efficiencies. The two companies together say they can capitalize on $1 billion in yearly efficiencies by combining. And, of course, you throw out the cost savings that may be passed on to consumers due to economies of scale. Now, that last part is likely PR-driven, but from a corporate perspective, it may give the new Kroger a leg up in their deals with certain CPGs and product manufacturers. Kroger also says it'll invest $500 million into lower prices at Albertsons. That is drastically needed to make them price competitive. Across many markets, Albertsons is known for having around a 35% premium over Kroger or Walmart prices. So that price investment, absolutely necessary to bring the Albertsons stores in line with the rest of the Kroger chain. And speaking of PR, Kroger also noted their willingness to invest $1.3 billion into Albertsons stores for customer experience purposes and another $1 billion for associate wages. Granted, some of this is going to come at the cost of so-called efficiencies, but basically cuts elsewhere and some of those what you might call redundancies that are there. You're going to see some jobs likely get cut in this ordeal. Now, that being said, one of the interesting things that I've read in the lead up to this agreement being announced is that Kroger, unlike maybe the next largest retailer after this proposal, is largely unionized, as is Albertson. So maybe you don't have to cross that bridge like Walmart might have to. And there's still kind of that non-union cloud hanging over Walmart a little bit, especially as the so-called war for talent gets a little bit tighter. From Albertson's perspective, one of the reasons they might have done this deal or at least announced it with this timing, Lauren Hirsch of the New York Times deal book notes that they might have been pressed into this action by the future expiration of a lockup agreement by four of Albertson's five largest shareholders. Basically, this agreement said that these shareholders weren't going to offload any shares until October 18th. So if these shareholders had flooded the market when the agreement expired, this lockup agreement expired on the 18th, share prices may have gone down for Albertsons, and Albertsons wouldn't have been able to capture this amount per share. So Albertsons trying to maximize that potential value for shareholders. And for Kroger, you, you understand that they probably could have waited, but Albertsons might not have struck this deal if Kroger had waited for another couple of weeks for those share prices to decrease. But to wrap it all up, it's going to be a while before any concrete movement happens on this front. We mentioned regulatory approval, but Albertson's shareholders must also approve the deal. And if everything goes as planned, and that's a big if, the deal is scheduled to close in early 2024. So still have a little bit over a year to wait before anything concrete happens on this front, and that's if it doesn't get scuttled in the meantime. We do think, I think between Leighton and myself, that the deal will be altered by regulatory forces, but you never do know. Sometimes we see deals get approval that we're not expecting, but generally speaking, regulators have been pretty clear on their desires to maybe keep apart any potential retail monopolies. We've seen it also in the office retail sector with the likes of Office Depot, Office Max, and Staples in the recent past. So ultimately, there's a lot to do here. There's a reason lawyers make good money. But again, as Leighton is fond of saying, the only party that wins in these circumstances is usually 
the attorneys that are being retained for the company's benefit. All right, well, that'll do it for our news segment. Huge news this week in retail could really shake up the grocery landscape and the entire retail landscape going forward if things continue. Coming up, we'll be joined by Ward Kempf, who is the president of Northwood Retail. By the way, Northwood Retail has a few Kroger properties in their locations, but we'll talk to him about open-air shopping centers, tenant mix, and why local and maker-based retailers are important to shopping centers and provide some much-needed diversity to shopping centers that customers are craving. Well, friends, I lost my phone in a waterfall recently. That's a long story, but the bane of my existence the past few weeks have been passwords and trying to get passwords reset. We're talking hours on the phone with various IT departments, and one of the places I do contract work for still hasn't figured things out. And it's not just me. Over 60% of organizations report that access issues impact their productivity regularly. In the same report from StrongDM, 31% of organizations said access issues are the source of daily disruptions to the workflow. And that, my friends, is where NordPass comes in. The NordPass Business Password Manager allows your team to focus on what matters most and allows everyone to save time and energy and keep password frustration out of your business. NordPass eases the burden of access to business accounts, making it possible for your team to work across devices and apps Log in, share, and make payments efficiently, and that's all backed by the highest standard of cyber-secure technology. With NordPass, you can forget about account resets because all your credentials are saved in one secure place with just a click. And login to your online accounts is absolutely seamless. Usernames and passwords populate automatically into login fields whenever you need them. Autofill also works on payment information, so anyone who has ever had to deal with the hassle of getting access to a company credit card or finding a company credit card or having to pay for something when you're traveling and you might not have that credit card, I am raising my hand right there. Those days are over. If you're a business, you can give full cross-platform access to employees in just minutes. HR folks, I'm talking to you. I do know what a hassle that can be. And you can ensure that all sensitive information remains confidential. If there's a breach, NordPass has monitoring for that as well. Now, you can see NordPass in action now with a three-month free trial at nordpass.com slash retail focus. Super easy to remember, nordpass.com slash retail focus with the code retail focus, all one word. That's a three-month free trial, and that is a great deal. In fact, I wish I had known about this deal before I lost my phone in a waterfall, but both Leighton and I, happy to use NordPass business and we think you'll find it a great tool as well. Again, that's nordpass.com slash retail focus for a three-month free trial. And as always, that URL, that's in our show notes. The theme we've touched on previously this year has been the changing brick-and-mortar consumer. We've learned, certainly, that the doom and gloom from forecasters regarding brick-and-mortar shopping was very much overstated in the late 2010s, and a new type of consumer is emerging from the pandemic that craves engaging 
in-person shopping experiences, and in particular, in experiences that involve being outdoors. And here to join us to discuss the new landscape of shopping centers, both open air and otherwise, is Ward Camp, the president of Northwood Retail. Northwood Retail is an organization with a ton of facets, among them leasing assistance, retail development, and property management. Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trent. Thanks for having me. First, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a bit of a brief background on Northwood Retail and the firm's work also in the retail industry, just so we kind of get an idea as far as the perspective that you bring here. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit. You know, so Northwood Retail is a subsidiary of Northwood Investors. And so Northwood Investors was founded in 2006 by John Kukrell. He left Blackstone, kind of sat the 07, 08 out. And, you know, he came up with the idea, what's unique about Northwood Retail and our other platforms, he came up with the idea instead of just being a, an allocator of capital to have vertical platforms. So we're in hospitality, we own hotels, multifamily. I run the retail and then we have office and we have a, a newer platform, urban logistics in the UK. And I think what's important about that is I think, you know, we're in it every day rather than, you know, we're working on the assets, whether we're fully integrated, we have leasing, marketing, development, and operations. And so I think every day we kind of see, you know, we have a lens from the West Coast to the East Coast, from California to the Carolinas, through Texas. Our first investment was in Dallas in 2010. We have a footprint that has three assets. We have one in NorCal, North San Diego County. We have four assets in Texas. We're in through Nashville and then into the Carolinas, kind of what I call the it markets. So I think, you know, a lot of it is just having a lens across the country into these markets that are really dynamic. And every day we see something new. We're constantly, you know, looking for first to market tenants. We think a lot about content and context. And when I say that any asset or any community we go into, we kind of think about like, how are we going to be good stewards in that community? And then what are the needs of the community? Is it a grocer? Is it more food? Is it better retail? So that's a little bit about our, we always say that Northwood retail is based on vision, strategy, and execution. So the vision's like, what's the vision for the asset? What's the strategy? And then, you know, what do we need people-wise or development, marketing, et cetera. So that's kind of our mantra in a nutshell is just kind of vision, strategy, execution. And we'll talk a little bit about the last five to 10 years in a second. But first, I did want to touch on that a little bit because as you mentioned, Northwood Retail is simply one branch of the overall company. And we know mixed-use developments are very much in vogue. That's kind of an it term nowadays. How did your involvement as a company in these other sectors, whether they be multifamily or office, what have you, kind of inform some of the mixed-use centers that you do have currently in your portfolio today? You know, that's a great question because I think mixed-use, you know, is getting overused, like a lot of things. We all pivot to, I think there's some really, really well-done mixed-use assets in the country. I think having the other disciplines or the other verticals, you know, we have a lens into multifamily at our assets. You know, we know how they operate. We know how rents, we know kind of what the consumer that lives there is like, what their demo is. The office tenants, where we have office at the retail projects, we kind of understand 
their needs, whether it's parking, you know, safety is obviously an issue both for our resident and for our office tenants. And then at Domain, while we don't own the hotel in Austin, you know, we have office, multifamily, retail, and we actually have a hotel integrated. So we have like all four of kind of our core disciplines in one asset. So the one thing about the hotel you see is it just drives, you know, every three or four days or two to three days, it just drives new bodies, new capital, new money's coming in. They become shoppers, they dine. Same with office and apartments. There's a lot of synergies having office at a mixed use asset. And then I think, you know, the one thing that we think is really important about mixed use, and I think a lot of people get this wrong, is I think mixed use, you've got to have great real estate. But more importantly, I think each asset class kind of has to stand on its own. I think that some of the parts make it stronger, but you can't have bad retail and good office or good retail and bad apartments. Like you need to kind of own it all. And that's one of the things that, you know, I think having all the different platforms we talk a lot about internally is we want to own it, control it all so we can make the right decisions for the, each asset. So I do think it really helps us to talk to my counterparts at Northwood Office, Northwood Hospitality, or Northwood on the residential side. So now that we've talked a little bit about Northwood's organizations and the company's approach to retail, I know you personally, you've been in the retail real estate space for quite some time. And I'm curious, just looking back in terms of consumer demand, the last five to 10 years, how has consumer demand around these shopping centers, around these spaces changed over the last five to 10 years? You know, I'd probably walk it back to the beginning. You know, I've been in it for close to 35 years, but, you know, I think I started in the mall business. And so I know that space really well. And I think what we saw was an asset class that for, you know, 30 years was maybe the best asset class, meaning the regional mall in all of real estate. And then that began to change. Open air started to come online. You know, you think about like Easton Town Center, the Grove, Easton was built in 99. The Grove was built in, I think it opened in 2002. There was already this kind of transformation into open air. And you also had the rise of e-commerce. You kind of fast forward to 2010, you know, nobody was building malls anymore. And so open air, you know, began to take on a very different meaning. And I think what's really changed over the last five or 10 years is these very dynamic markets, you know, Phoenix is one, Dallas, Austin, Charleston, Tampa, Miami. I think that the one thing that we've seen is the concentric circles are getting smaller and the traders are getting, it's kind of 15 minute drive time, good incomes. But I think the retailers are more open, the better retailers, the better food or better restaurants feel like, you know, they want to be in open air centers. This was not, COVID just accelerated open air taking off, but it was already in vogue, whether you had a patio or you were closer to the consumer. And kind of as I walk back, you know, you think about online coming 20 years ago, that was kind of the demise of the department store. You just, you can take 2000 and the line just goes straight down. 
in 2015, we started to look at the malls. You could see there was a sea shift big time to open air. And so I just think the consumer prefers it. And then, you know, the number one thing that we know is convenience, convenience and convenience. I mean, it's just great locations, but being convenient to the consumer, I think with either online shopping or, you know, the use of the phone, buy online, pick up in-store BOPAS is really, really important today. So I think they've only become a bigger fabric of retail today. So we talk about the consumer shift and the consumer demand shift during that time. Over, let's say, the last five years as an industry specific to these open-air shopping centers, what have we learned as these centers have been developed, as these centers have been tweaked to provide an optimal experience for the consumer? Overall, what do you feel like the industry has learned the most? Well, I think one thing is is that you have to place make, right? that it's got to have this experiential piece to it. And, you know, that's an overused word in retail, but I do think you've got a place to make. Like I said, I was at a center in North Dallas. You know, we redeveloped it. We put a park in. I think you've got to put, you know, the right retailers in. I think that's really important. I just think that what we've learned is, you know, patios are critical parking, ease of access. I think the other thing that, you know, we really haven't talked about services play a big important part in today's open air mixed use assets, you know, where we see orthodontics or we see like Westlake Dermatology down in Austin or our day spas. I think so many people think retail is all about apparel and it was and kind of has been But I think the service side of retail and then the food and beverage side has grown so much. That's, you know, one thing that you can't do online. And so I think that's kind of, if I was going to say in a nutshell, those are the takeaways, you know, and technology's become such an important part of retail, whether it's through your phone, whether it's an Apple store, whether it's EV cars, EV charging stations. I mean, all that's starting to play in and meld into kind of this open air experience. So I think it's really important to understand what the trends are and where they're going and kind of be one of the first movers around those trends. You mentioned services. You mentioned some of these other things that consumers are now thirsting for around these centers. Obviously, everyone in commercial real estate, doesn't matter whether you're open air center, small neighborhood strip, whatever, everyone talks about tenant mix. I was wondering what the evaluation process is like, maybe for Northwood Retail or maybe as an industry, as it pertains to hitting that sweet spot in mix in some of these centers where, as you mentioned, we've seen kind of the dynamics of the centers really change in the last three to five years. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, you always want credit, right? I mean, that's what everybody always talks about, credit, but you never know when the next first to market guy or a tenant that has one store, they have an idea becomes something big. You know, I met Kendra Scott in 2010. She had three stores. I met Allie Webb. She had, I think, two stores with dry bar. I think it's kind of, it's trial and error, but I do think one of our ideas or one of our thoughts is I think 15 to 18% of the center should be local or regional in nature. And I think it makes up like 80% of the character of the shopping center. So 
you know, I do think locals and regionals play a really important part. I think a lot of guys just want the credit. And I think they don't realize that there's this new wave of retail that's out there that is your new credit. So I think we try to balance keeping a center fresh, making it a unique experience and also catering the market we're in. You know, I think what happened, Trent, is the world became ubiquitous. You know, you would go to any mall in America and you'd see the same store over and over. It didn't matter where you went. And I think the consumer, a lot of this is about demographics, right? And so for 30 years, we were just going to suburban America and just repeating same department stores, same chain stores. And I think the consumer got smarter and they wanted a different experience. So I think that's really important to us when we think about merchandise in a center. Little center in North Dallas, it's 160,000 feet. We have a Warby Parker. We have Mendocino Farms, Flower Child. We have what we think is the up and coming new coffee tenant, La La Land, open on Montana in Santa Monica. You know, we're able to see trends really early or see these tenants. And I think we've done it so often that I think we're able to understand their business plan and just, you know, there's a term called thin slicing and you do it over and over and you're able to just kind of pick the winners and every once in a while it blows up on you. You know, they don't always work, but I do think that's how you keep your centers fresh. That's a great look into the evaluation process there, certainly for some of these smaller tenants that, as you mentioned, they may become your credit tenants. Right. in the future. I am wondering, though, especially from a management perspective, obviously dealing with credit tenants is a lot different from dealing with these outlets that might have one, two, three stores, but are in a growth phase. How do you manage the different types of tenants there when you're just looking at retail credit versus non-credit, local versus national, and so forth? Is there a different management style maybe that you use with these different tenants? Yeah. You know, I listen, I think you always want, you know, best in class. That's kind of where you start. And each company's run a little bit differently. I think what you're trying to find is, you know, what's kind of the secret sauce, right? With locals. And so we created this street called Rock Rose. Actually, it was our partners that kind of came up with the idea, but they went to the best local bar and restaurant operators. And they said, hey, these guys know Austin better than anyone, they kind of got tired of dealing with the Sixth Street crowd. And I think what Rock Rose is, it's it's probably one of the most authentic suburban streets in the U.S. You know, it's got kind of an entertainment bar district to it, along with very good specialty retail. I mean, we have, you know, Chanel Beauty on there. We have Doc Martens, Apple. But then we have this set of restaurant and bar owners that kind of created this really unique street and you know rock rose has kind of become the anchor to domain which you know has traditional retail we have a lot of dtc brands direct to consumer brands that are there i think you know we have almost more than any other center but i do think it's important for people to kind of understand you've got to do something really unique and brave and courageous to make center great. And I think that's something we're really proud of. Got to be in the right markets, you know, with the right assets though. That's really, really important. I think whether it's a national, a regional or a local, 
I mean, definitely with the locals, I think you find it more interesting with the nationals. I think what we're always looking for is fair. I think retail's kind of in retail development, it's kind of white hat, black hat. And I think we do look at it like we want the best for both of us. And I think some developers, they only want rent. And I think with nationals, we try to take that approach and regionals as well as well as locals. I mean, we try to treat them all the same. And, you know, sometimes the national guys, they use a lot of finesse and muscle and they can. And I think they're incredibly important to each asset, you know, whether it's a grocer or whether it's a home improvement or it's, you know, home goods, et cetera. I think you have those guys. I think you have the department stores. And then I think, you know, you have specialty retailers like Apple, et cetera, that people really, really desire to have. And, you know, we kind of work with everybody from a big box tenant, like a Home Depot to TJ Maxx, all the way to, you know, whether it's a luxury tenant or some of the best restaurant operators, Sam Fox with his concepts. So I think when we're looking at this, you know, it definitely changes. We've seen people sell concepts to publicly traded companies. And the second that happens, you know, everything becomes a little bit different, right? Versus kind of picking the phone up and calling the person and saying, hey, we need this or that, or they do the same. So I think, you know, when you look at the credit tenants, they dig into it a lot deeper. But I do think on balance, we try to find the retailers that we want to do business with. I think it's important. So now I wanted to circle back to something that you referenced earlier, in particular when you were talking about maybe office and development of these centers, which is safety. So one thing we've heard a ton of this year, whether it's at ICSC or other conferences, is that more and more younger generations are asking for things that are pedestrian friendly for walkability. But at the same time, we've seen, especially since COVID, you mentioned the buy online pickup and store optionality. They want that curbside pickup, et cetera. From your perspective, what are some of the best practices in terms of optimizing both desires, optimizing that walkability, but also making sure retailers and outlets there, maybe restaurants, have that curbside pickup available to them when they enter your center? Well, I think they're all looking for it today. You know, it's either that or assign some type of 15 minute, you know, if we can't assign parking, you know, we've done 15 minute parking to allow for it at all of our centers. You know, we've done something. It was one of the first things I said, like, this is not going away. This is permanent. You know, as soon as the pandemic hit, I think that's really important. I think the pedestrian part is evolving, especially with the younger generation. You know, we're starting to see through Northwood office. I saw, you know, I'm able to get the data on office. And what's interesting is, and this is kind of timely, I saw it this week, is it feels like the work week, if it's not 4-1, it's becoming 3-2 is kind of what the data is saying. And so with Wednesday being the biggest day, whether it's Manhattan or it's Dallas, I mean, I saw it yesterday here. I saw it last week in San Diego. And so I think, you know, prior to this shift in the way people work, some developers didn't want to place make and didn't want people to just kind of get on their computers and kind of hang out, grab a cup of coffee. And I think the smart ones or what we embraced was there was going to be a shift. It's some of our properties we have residential, you know, you definitely want to have coffee. You know, if somebody's working from your asset, because they're not going to work from home every day, 
do they buy a cup of coffee? Does that turn into, they go to yoga or they go to spend? Does that turn into lunch? You know, does that turn into a fuller day? And so I do think the young, you know, want this stuff, especially the millennials and Gen Z. And the other thing is, you know, I still think everybody likes to eat out. I think less time in the office. I think food's really important or fitness classes, et cetera. I think that's what's bringing the younger cohort together outside the office place. What well, is the season or basically in it? In fact, the holiday shopping season. And I always like to close out our interviews by asking people about the future. And in this case, we're talking about the very near future. So in terms of holiday season 2022, what do you see in terms of traffic? What do you see going on in terms of maybe consumer behavior as it pertains to these shopping centers coming up for this holiday season? Yes. You know, what I would tell you is just kind of walking back through it. Think about the beginning 2020 so I can get to where we are now, where I think we're going to be for this holiday season. You know, 2020, we went necessity based was all about going to Home Depot or, you know, it was all about grocery, right? Everybody needed food. Things were closed down. I think what we saw necessity based retail started it, started winning. And then we quickly went to discretionary spending and that went through a majority of 2020 into 21. And I think this is something people aren't kind of processing right now is you've got to remember in 21, we had Delta kind of at back to school and we had Omicron hit, you know, mid November last year. And so last year, Everybody was so worried about the holiday season. They were like, there was this drumbeat, you know, from the media, buy it now, buy it now, it won't be in the stores. And that was real. There were inventories, there were logistic problems. I think what we're now seeing is a shift to services. What we've seen in our portfolio, just sales wise this year is, you know, people are going, like I said, they're going to the service side, whether they're going to get a haircut at, you know, the best salon in our center they're going to workout classes, they're going to smile direct, whatever it is, you know, they're going to services. So that's flipped and that's caused a lot of these retailers. The other thing too, about last holiday, you got to remember we had 40 million checks for an average of $3,000. It's $120 billion. It was directly infused. And I think a lot of it went into retail from July to last Christmas. Plus we had stimulus on top of that. We've kind of removed all that. We have removed all that this year. We do have costs rising and I think we have a deceleration, but I do think we forget we're going to have a normal Halloween for the first time. We're going to have a normal Thanksgiving for the first time, which, you know, you're seeing airfare and travel kind of come back into the picture that may be taking a little bit away from, if you're thinking practically about just consuming either clothes or services, people are going to travel. And so I do think we're seeing some, you know, we're starting to hear a lot about inventory levels. And I think it's real because I think people bought based on all the challenges they had last year, either getting goods in or just the overconsumption and the amount of money that was available to spend on. So I think you're going to naturally see some type of deceleration I do think the holiday season will be promotional. You know, we haven't seen that. We didn't see that last year or the year before because people just didn't have the inventory. So 
what I think you have to watch out for is who has too much inventory and then how promotional does it get? But I do think the people that have very unique stores know their customers and or services and or experiences most likely, you know, we'll have overall pretty decent holiday season. But I do think we've got to remember the backdrop of we do have rising costs. We do have some deceleration in the economy. So I think we just on balance, I think we'll have more moderate sales increases than we've seen in the last two years. And just quickly here, I know we talked earlier about the dynamics behind smaller retailers in these centers or even local retailers in these centers. One thing that ties directly into this is a really interesting podcast that Northwood Retail has called Backstory Beginnings. And I'll, I'll be honest, I listened to multiple episodes yesterday as I was kind of preparing for our own interview here. Could you tell us a little bit about the podcast and your overall motivation behind starting it. Yeah. So Trent, I'll give you the idea, you know, so I did a podcast, I don't know, it was like two years ago, almost this exact time. And I got a call, I was invited to be a guest and then I got a call from the people that produced it. And they said, Hey, you know, we think you have a good pulse on kind of B2C. And I'm like, eh, that's kind of hard to connect. I don't know about that. But I said, I'll call you tomorrow. I think I have an idea. And so I went home and I thought about, you know, what it was that really drives these businesses. You know, as I was talking about, you don't know when the next kind of one-off retailer becomes your credit retailer, right? So, you know, I came up with the idea that we needed to go talk to founder businesses. And I think that's what we really like about whether they're local I think we like to deal with founder businesses. And so, you know, I came up with this idea that I think people want to hear about how people got started and whether that's Susie with Susie Cakes or Nina Bartola, who's a tenant of ours, you know, that's blown up in Austin. I just think that a lot of these people, you know, have a very interesting story, whether they were a stylist and decided to get into retail or, you know, you look at like, Susie's story. They were recipes from her two grandmothers, you know, that she came up with the idea to start Susie Cakes. With Nina, you know, all of a sudden celebrity clients started buying her jewelry. So I think it's always interesting because A, I want people to hear the story and the evolution of retail because I think people think it's easy. But there's a common thread through all these people. It was incredibly hard. They were incredibly determined. And for the most part, they're all very successful. But the other thing too, you can kind of see it real quick with these people. They're either incredibly creative and somebody does the finance piece or vice versa. They understand finance really well and they go find the really creative people. And so, you know, we're just trying to get people tell the story about how they got started, what their path was. And then more importantly, Hopefully it encourages other people to say, you know what, I've got an idea. I want to go do it. And so that was kind of the genesis behind Backstory Beginnings. And as I mentioned, it's a great podcast, kind of bite-sized podcast, if you will, but you can access those at uh, backstorybeginnings.com. Well, Ward, thank you so much for taking the time for joining us today. I know we could talk about these topics forever, but I, I know you've got a busy schedule. And so I'll let you get on with that, but I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, Trent. Thank you.
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Really enjoyed that conversation with Ward Camp and looking forward to perhaps circling back with him, visiting with him in the future about not only open air shopping centers, but I think what Northwood Retail is doing is really compelling in terms of searching for maybe that next credit tenant, as they mentioned. What is the next retailer to break it big? And we were kind of talking off of the air, but he is a firm believer that you know malls have a lifespan if you don't keep them fresh, and retailers have a lifespan if you don't keep them fresh. And you're seeing retailers having to fend off competition. Overall, that lifespan was a lot longer many years ago, 20, 30, 40 years. Obviously, we've seen retailers survive for a century or longer. But recently, it seems like especially in vogue retailers, their lifespan is is shrinking a little bit before other retailers come out with maybe competing scopes or competing services. It's the same thing for those services businesses Ward was talking about. So I think that's a very compelling argument to be made for always looking for kind of the next big thing and being willing to take a chance on maybe a retailer with just one or two locations to that point. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment this week, we're going to keep it in grocery as while we were taking a bit of a break from the podcast to traveling, Chinooks introduced a new FlexForce option for potential new employees or even existing employees. Now, for those that might not be aware, Schnucks is a privately owned retailer. They have 112 stores, mostly in the Midwest. You see Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, but they are a big market share player in St. Louis. That is potentially their biggest market. They have 12,000 employees within their company. And what this FlexForce app is going to allow them to do is it's going to allow Chinooks to both sign up employees that are maybe flexible work employees. So you're not looking necessarily at gig economy employees because these flexible work employees will have the same benefits as the part-time workers that are at Chinooks. So they'll be eligible for the same benefits. But what this app is going to do is allow people to log on to the app and take shifts even at different stores and also sign up for push notifications when a shift comes available at a store they've selected. Now, the starting pay for the FlexForce employees is $12.85 per hour. They're kind of restricting that to those 18 years old or older. And they hosted a career fair for all of their stores right after the launch of this. So this was launched on October 3rd. The career fair took place on October 6th with the design of signing up employees to specifically be FlexForce employees. Now, as I mentioned, existing employees are able to also sign up for the app, are able to also take additional shifts. But if you're a part-time or full-time employee with Chinooks, you have the option of remaining a part-time or full-time employee and therefore kind of being at the mercy of the regular schedules that come out within the store. Alternatively, you can move into this FlexForce employment So I think this is an interesting looking head story because first of all, I do want to see how it affects Chinooks, how it affects training on an in-store basis. Because 
As much as retailers would like to believe that everything is homogenized across their chains, as anyone who has worked in retail and has been maybe loaned out to other stores would tell you, the management style and oftentimes even daily tasks can be different across different stores. And so for these FlexForce employees, it will be a little bit of a learning curve as you jump from store to store or potentially jump from store to store to take these roles on. How does store X versus store Y want something done? How does a particular manager want something done? And management styles differ. Again, we would like to believe that everything is homogenized, but obviously people are people. They're going to be different. They're going to be unique individuals. Everyone's going to have their own management style and way they want things done. So how is this going to affect the employees? Will it be a positive or negative? Will it keep things fresh for them? And also you wonder how many employees will sign up for this FlexForce type of platform. Now, there are other retailers in the past that have been looking at potentially diving into gig economy workers. Big Lots has been rumored as one of them, Meyer and Walmart as others. But ultimately, it's interesting because this Chinooks platform, instead of just looking at gig economy workers as maybe third-party independent contractors, they are straight-up Chinooks employees and are benefits eligible at whatever status they happen to be at in terms of their flex force operations. So that being noted, I do think this is a little bit different. It'll be interesting to see if companies really latch on to this concept and idea as they, again, compete to build out their workforce. You see, just as you did a couple of years ago, now hiring signs everywhere throughout retail, especially as we get into the holiday season. I do think this is distinct and different from some of the third-party platforms. And it's also distinct and different from some of the other platforms that have been rolled out by retailers in the past. You do have similar platforms that allow people to kind of pick and choose shifts or pick up open shifts and that type of thing. But the turnaround on this is a little bit closer. And also for those full and part-time employees now, they're going to have increased flexibility for ASCOFs because this FlexForce platform exists. So Overall, you applaud Chinooks for trying to do something that seems to be well-received, at least so far, by their staff in their stores. And you wonder if this will spread to other regional grocers and other regional retailers once you see this proof of concept, so to speak, borne out in the form of Chinooks. And again, don't want to gloss over the fact that these type of platforms have existed in the past, but I think Chinooks is doing it quite a bit differently here in terms of their overarching program and what they're seeking to do in terms of hiring these new FlexForce employees. Well, that'll do it for us here on this episode of the Retail Focus Podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be back to talking about holiday sales forecasts. We'll be joined by Rick Watson of RMW Consulting, and he'll talk about what he sees coming up for the holiday season. And we'll also discuss what e-commerce retailers can do to maybe capture some of that share of wallet in this coming holiday season. Well, for Leighton working behind the scenes, I'm Trent saying so long for this episode, and we hope you'll like and subscribe going forward. Big thanks to NordPass also for sponsoring this week's version of the Retail Focus Podcast. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.